for club and you ain't in it full of psychopaths who believe in eugenics it's an evil club and you ain't in it full of psychopaths who believe in eugenics it's an evil club and you ain't in it all right welcome everybody this is the reality czars podcast and we're your hosts nate and tony hello uh we have a really fascinating guest on uh he reached out to me on twitter um when we were announcing the Giants episode we did with Paz, um, and he wanted to talk to us more about Giants. So his name is Ken Ami. Is that how you say your last name? Ami. Ami. Um, and so do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I mean, uh, within the context of our discussion, I would just say I'm a Messianic Jew, meaning I'm uh a Jew. I was born a Jew and I'll die a Jew. And at the age of 27, I came to re, um, recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, my Lord, God and Savior. And now it's not surprising due to my background because beyond being Jewish, I always did enjoy um, starting like in the sixth grade reading about cryptozoology, UFOs, witchcraft, just anything that was odd and weird. <laughs> and so it's not surprising that I've ended up trying to specialize in what I call um, systematic biblical paranormology, which is just everything paranormal in the Bible. It kind of makes sense that my interest continued on to where I'm looking at the Bible through those lenses and uh, trying to figure out all this stuff. And so I've written just on the issue of Nephilim alone, maybe seven to nine books. It kind of depends on how you count them because I just find it such a fascinating topic. Yeah. That's really cool, man. Uh, you'll have to email me those. Uh, if you want to email me those links to those books. Yeah. I'd love to put those in the show notes so people oh, can check them out. That'd be great. Thanks um, so much. So I am fascinated by the Nephilim and I, I come to, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm kind of new into this whole conspiracy world and the whole cryptid and that, that whole type of thing. And, um, I, I've always sort of been fascinated about it, but I've only really taken it seriously, like maybe the last two years. And I definitely come from this, uh, from like a biblical perspective. So this is right in my wheelhouse, man. I'm excited to talk to you. Excellent. Well, you might be surprised in the end, but let's go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I hope so. <laughs> I just well, sent you that link, by the way, through the chat in this uh, Zencast oh, awesome. website. Yeah, there you go. Cool, man. Well, so wanna, where do you want to start? <sighs> well, why don't I put you guys on the spot? If you could just outline for us in just a couple sentences, what would you say is just the, the normative nephilology that basically everybody knows is actually biblical? So what I know, as far as uh, just the Bible Bible, really only mentions it, I think, twice uh, or just a couple of times. And um, they were angels, I think, that were referred to as the Watchers. And they were here on Earth. Um, they partook in carnal relations with humans. Uh, they had um, babies and they were called the Nephilim. Um, and as far as I can tell, they were giant in stature and, um, pretty, I don't know if evil's the right word, but, uh, they were, uh, 
uh, and God, they were an abomination in God's eyes. And he came and destroyed the Nephilim and I th- probably the, those watchers too punish them in some way. Um, so as far as the Bible goes, that's how, when, it, how you- it went. But there was still like uh, there were still giants on the earth in those days. So I'm fascinated. Um, I, I yeah, I want to hear what you got, man. When, yeah, I would say. Oh, what, sorry. Sorry. When would you say they were destroyed? I thought they were destroyed uh, in the flood. Okay, fair Correct. enough. I'm for now. I'm just um, gauging your perspective and seeing what I can speak on. So uh, you can speak on everything, man. Okay. We are super open. I, I want to hear it. Like if you think there's Nephilim still here, I want to hear about it. Like, <laughs> like there's no, there's no windows. You can Appreciate smash that. every window. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of new to this too. Um, the Nephilim topic. Um, the only thing I would add to that is that I see a little bit of the Anunnaki crossover inhabiting it. So this, um, some people think it's an alien thing instead of an angel thing, which isn't in the Bible, but I said that's kind of a common perception of it. Well, how would an atheist explain an angel? They might, well, you know what I mean? They might call it an alien, you know? Yeah. It's, um... <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then as far as giants go, I truly believe that they did find giant's bones and uh, that the Smithsonian was hiding them and that there have been uh, numerous cultures all throughout the earth that have talked about giants and have giant myths. And typically the giants are not nice people. Uh, (laughs) A little bit of cannibalism going on and some, you know, some violence here and there. So uh, yeah, man, unload on me. Where do you want to start? Yeah, just a little more probing. How about, uh, so that was biblical and then maybe a, around the world, but how about extra biblical, like uh, Apocrypha or Pseudepigrapha? I'm not familiar with that. What is okay. that? Okay, no, no worries. Yeah, I, no I'd worries. like to be. You can tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, Apocrypha would be books like Jubilees or Ezra's, uh, or sometimes they're called deuterocanonical, like a secondary canon. And then pseudopigraphic books would be like uh, Ethiopic Enoch. So I've read the book of Enoch um, uh, specifically about this because I was so fascinated. I want to hear more about Nephilim and giants. Okay, good. So now that's a good um, setting of the table for the discussion. That's really good stuff. As far, you know, what's interesting about when you asked what would an atheist call an angel, maybe an alien. Well, but that's just part of the issue with um, that there are word meanings or definitions, and then there are word usages, and often they differ. That's going to become very important as we discuss these issues. So, for example, if we're defining an alien as an extraterrestrial, well, then, of course, an angel would fit that bill because they are extra terrestrial by definition they are existing in another realm and then they can traverse into this one on occasion so that's kind of one of those interesting things yeah by definition alien angel angel alien that's what they are (laughs) yeah Uh, whether whether they're flying around and you know nuts and bolts craft that's a whole other show that's a whole other story (laughs) 
but uh, in terms of terminology, yeah, it's kind of interesting that does that that does work out. So then, um, one of the fascinating things about uh, nephilology is that when it comes to biblical nephilology, yeah, we're talking about two verses, not even two texts, two verses, period. Yeah. And those two have led to millennia's worth of discussion, interpretation, investigation, debate, <laughs> so that here we are, all these millennia later, still talking about it. And it's fascinating, in part because of the little tiny bit that we're told about it. Okay, and so that's kind of one a very important thing to keep in mind is that when you're talking about, for example, Ethiopic Enoch, I mean, you're talking about a text that was written millennia after the Torah. So it yeah. kind of shows how, and incidentally, the, the pseudepigraphical era is, a.k.a. It's, it's really the second temple era. So it's talking about like, say, 570 B.C. till 70 A.D. So pretty much any text written within that time range, it's called pseudepigraphic versus apocryphal for whatever reason. I mean, come on, scholars just like to come up with stuff. Okay, whatever. Uh, <laughs> and the, the issue is that the Second Temple era is notorious for wild speculation, for false claims of prophethood, for historical fiction, and for people writing texts that we don't know why, why they wrote them. We don't know their motivations. We just can read what they said and see if it's cogent or not. Um, and so one thing that it seems to me is, and it still happens today, people like to attempt to fill gaps, right? So for instance, since we only have two verses about Nephilim in the Bible, that's gigantic gaps and people like to fill them. So they fill them with, uh, historical fiction, they fill them with whatever, dreams and visions. And in our day, we fill them with what I term neo-theo sci-fi. Mostly, that's what you're going to get out of the pop researchers. Okay, so now, um, sometimes, you know, usually I talk about Nephilim. I kind of have to wonder whether I should discuss it from the top down or the bottom up. So do I like do I set the table slowly and come to my conclusion, or do I start with the conclusion and then kind of show you how I got <laughs> how I got there? So, since you guys have had discussions with people who are very well known um, for discussing these topics, I suppose that I'm going to say that actual, verifiable biblical nephilology is so incredibly boring that nobody could make a living off of it. Nobody could establish, quote unquote, ministries based on discussing it. Nobody could write books about it, uh, really, because there's so little there, right? And so this is why it becomes theo-neo sci-fi or neo-theo sci-fi, because um, I know that when I'm listening to some of the most well-known guys discussing these issues, it is absolutely fascinating. And I love listening to those guys because they can tell some tall tales that are just gripping. But <laughs> when I get down to brass tacks and I'm uh, researching whether what they're saying is actually factually demonstrable and accurate, there are some gigantic problems there. So let's just review the biblical material, okay? And uh, again, two verses, okay? So the first one is Genesis 6. 
And the bottom line here is that the Nephilim were in the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were old men of renown. At this point, that is the only thing we know about Nephilim is they lived on earth. Okay, obviously. Um, Genesis 6, the first few verses are pre-flood. So we know when they live roughly. We know that the, their parents were sons of God and daughters of man. And that's an entire discussion on its own. <laughs> so yeah, let me cut, let me, yeah, let me cut to the chase on that one right away. Um, the original, traditional, and majority view among the earliest Jews and Christians alike for centuries was what's known as the angel view, that the sons of God were angels. That is verifiable. I wrote an entire book doing nothing but just proving that by reviewing every known person who commented on the verse from, let's say, roughly 300 BC up until the 500s AD. So that's my book, uh, The Genesis 6 Affair, Sons of God, Angels or Not. And now um, the, the second most well-known view is called the Sethite view. Well, that didn't come around for, until centuries A.D. And now I know at this point some people will say, okay, but majority doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Okay, yeah, I'll grant you that. But it's just a simple, basic level historical fact that the original traditional majority view among Jews and Christians, it was the angel view for a very long time. Okay, what is the, what's the Sethite view? Sethite view is that the sons of God refers to descendants of Seth and daughters of men refers to descendants of Cain. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Now I, I me, typically go by the angel view myself. Yes, I do as well. Yeah. And so one of the problems is the claim will usually be that the Sethites were um, a bloodline of holy righteous people and the Canaanites were a bloodline of wicked, sinning people. And frankly, I think that's just a myth. I mean, you kind of really have to push the Bible to, to get it to say anything like that. There's an entire bloodline of righteous people and an entire bloodline of wicked people. And by the way, the Sethites were so holy that they intermarried with the wicked people and caused all this corruption to come on the earth. You know, that doesn't really compute. Yeah. And notice also, it was strictly sons, males of God, and strictly female daughters of men. So really, only strictly males on the Sethite side and only strictly females on the Canaanite side? On the Canaanite side. Why? That, that doesn't really make sense. But when you consider that, biblically speaking, angels are described as looking just like human males, then it makes sense. It has to be only male sons of God because that's the only variety uh, that we get of angels is beings that look like human males. That's it. So anyhow, let me just throw this in um, because I've studied the history of this. The Sethite view became popularized by Augustine and I played armchair psychologist with Augustine. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, um, Augustine converted to Christianity from a Gnostic sect called Manichaean. Now, Manny himself held to the angel view. 
and well, when Augustine converted to Christianity, he wanted to do away with any belief that he had previously held from that Gnostic sect. So I think that's why he opted to come up and popularize this Sethite view, because he just didn't want to be associated with his former Gnostic sect. So I'm just saying, uh, Augustine was so incredibly influential that I think that's for why that's, that view started taking off and being accepted. But so anyhow, that's just a little uh, psychology, yeah. <laughs> a little armchair psychology. But I think it does work. I think it explains why it wasn't necessarily that he was interpreting the text in and of itself, but he just kind of wanted to um, come yeah. up with a different view that his former, you know, mentor had or okay. whatever. That's yeah. fascinating. Um, I just out of curiosity, I'm I'm always curious about little different Gnostic sets and different things. Did the Gnostics or uh, or even like uh, Kabbalists or anything have uh, any interpretation of uh, the Nephilim? Did, is that ever mentioned in any, like in the Kabbalah or any Gnostic texts? We find that in, in much, 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 much later rabbinic Jewish commentary, they'll turn to opt for the concept that the sons of God were nobles, Right, like uh, the higher class of people uh, who intermix with the hoi polloi, you know, the regular folk, uh, which of course doesn't make sense on its face because there's that kind of class warfare stuff in the Bible just does not exist. There's no so indication. Are they trying to, in- to say that like the Nephilim were like uh, were like uh, like an Ubermensch kind of thing, like a Superman that they created by like N- not even that. They were just regular humans who were in the upper class. They were nobles. Interesting. But there's nothing in the Bible anywhere whatsoever about that it would, any in any case, be forbidden that, like, a nobleman marries a common woman. And it just doesn't exist, you know. So, yeah, that is just, it's not even worth consideration because there's just nothing to back it. It's just an assertion. Okay. So... We are making. We're assuming now that we're coming from an angelic perspective. And the main, if I had to just put my finger on one verse as backup, I would say Job thirty-eight seven. It says that the sons of God, at the very least, witness the creation of the earth. Yeah. Now wow. it doesn't okay. tell you, hey, sons of God are angels. It doesn't tell you that, but you can at least say, hey, they weren't humans. That much we can say. Yeah. Now, I will note that the Septuagint, the LXX, uh, it does actually have angelos for um, Beneha Elohim. It, it does actually call them angels in the Greek. So that that's just kind of a little, the, like the more direct way of arguing this point is that sons of God doesn't necessarily or exclusively mean angels, but it does in, on occasion. And I believe okay. this is one such occasion. Yeah. Also, you get Jude and Second Peter talking about a sin of angels. And, well, there's only a one-time fall of angels in the whole entire Bible. So if they're not talking about Genesis 6, I have no idea what they're talking about. What else could they be talking about, right? And, in fact, Second Peter um, places the time of this sin of angels to before Sodom and Gomorrah, 
which fits quite nicely into this uh, pre-flood timeline chronology. Yeah. So, yeah, that's just kind of some kind of, you see, I like to make this stuff just really common sense and bottom line and simple, you know, that's simple stuff, but it works because that's what the text says. <laughs> yeah. And it, it seems like humans were uh, sexually attracted maybe to angels. I mean, if you go to Sodom and Gomorrah, right, they, yeah, they were, they were wanting those angels and things like that. Yeah. So it, it seems like maybe this was something that had happened prior you know, something that had, you know, it had, had well, happened before. Um, gotcha. Yes, you know? that makes sense. And if you notice in Genesis 6, uh, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive. It's right there. And they took them wives, yeah. right? So angels were uh, like. They still are. My wife is beautiful. Yeah. Angels were looking down like, baby got back. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> So I'm kind of curious, what conclusions are you um, coming to with all of this? Okay, so good. Um, so right now, we're just focused on what this one text is telling us. And what it's telling us is that pre-flood, angels mated with humans, and they had Nephilim. And we don't know why, but Nephilim were well-known. I mean, we don't know why they were well-known, but they were well-known for some reason. So, I mean, just strictly restricted to this verse, that's what it's telling us. So what are your thoughts on something like uh, the, the the Epic of Gilgamesh? To me, um, it, are, are you familiar with it? Have you read it? Yes. Um, I'm, I mean, it's. I know it's, yes, it's contextual because not, uh, Gilgamesh is supposed to be I uh, forget the ratio. It's either like two thirds divine and one third human or the other way around. But it's, it's yeah. kind of like uh, this Nephilim concept where he's a hybrid. That's, just like they yeah. Are. That's exactly what I got from it. When I yeah. read that, I was like, that sounds exactly like a Nephilim to me. Like well, he's part divine, part human. And yeah. he's this giant warlord that, you know, does atrocious things. Yeah. And, and so even if that was a different culture trying to explain something that had happened a long time ago, yes. you know, I, I think you put your finger right on it because the, here's what I would explain. Okay. Why do so many ancient cultures that allegedly have no contact with each other have some of the very same basic stories about an original creation in a garden and then a flood and only a few people surviving, blah, 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 this and that, the other. Okay. Uh, my view would be that before the Tower of Babel event, humanity lived in relative proximity, right? After the Tower of Babel event, humanity was dispersed throughout the world. Well, they took with them what was then commonly known and shared history yeah. And eventually, as time went on, and this story and that one was changed in this point or other, it comes to be called myth and legend. That's fascinating, man. I, I think you, I think you're right on the money there. Yeah, no, I would that say this was a, a shared yeah. cultural event, right. and then after the fall of Babel, and then everyone's languages changed and peoples were separated. Yeah. They still had those myths. They are not necessarily myths, but uh, they still had those tales that were, you know, that were passed down word of mouth. And so then, you know, after years and years, they get changed, they get tweaked a little, but they still all have the same basic, uh, basic story. Yeah. Right. And by the way, not the fall of Babel. It's the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. Yeah, that's yeah. 
funny. Now, um, there's a concept called a humorism, which is a view that says that all myths and legends are true. I wouldn't, I don't think we need to go that far, but yeah. I would say that there is a nugget in many of them. And this is a great explanation as to why that is. So where do you think Nephilim, uh, do you think that they were all destroyed in the flood? I would do you say think there uh, is still, yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. I would say that the biblical evidence, well, let me put you on the spot again. <laughs> okay. Do you think that the flood had anything to do with Nephilim? Um, well, I'm, I see, I'm not the greatest biblical scholar. I read the Bible. I like the Bible, but I should have probably done some reading before we had this conversation. I, doesn't it say something about how the, did the Nephilim, were they, did it, does it say in the Bible that they were destroyed? Does it say that God, uh, destroyed the Nephilim? Okay. And don't feel bad, by the way. I'm yeah, just, yeah. like I said before, I'm putting you on the spot just to kind of see, to gauge, so uh, I, what I yeah. think, uh, technically, I guess, right, that God did the flood because the earth was immoral. It was it was full of sin. It was full of debauchery. Yeah. It was yeah. full of disgusting things. Yeah. And I think that the Nephilim were definitely a part of that. I think they yeah. were an abomination yeah. that was on the earth. Excellent. So, yes, I do think that it was part of it. You, you, you hit the nail on the head. Yes. Um, so now I'm just going to throw this in for detractors, people that reject the angel view i'm just going to throw in this in give me just a minute to lay it out so they'll say well this didn't have anything to do with angels because when god is talking about the coming flood he says he saw the wickedness of man upon the earth and god regretted he had made man on the earth and i will blot out man man and animals so they're saying see this is all about humanity it's a man 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 and man um, but when you consider that angels are always referred to as men, uh, mm -hmm. then, of course, Nephilim are also referred to as men because they're like half men, right? Like uh, Barack Obama is called the first black president, even though he's half black. Well, we still call him black. I mean, so Nephilim are called men. Uh, angels are called men all over the Bible. So that's really a non-issue. Um, now, we're told throughout the Bible about five different times that it was Noah and his family and some animals that survived the flood, period, full stop. That's it. Yeah. That's it. So we can at this point say, okay, it's verified various times that there's no way Nephilim survived. Okay. Okay. Now, now I can just hear it now. I can hear it. That this verse I just read says that they were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So what about that, right? Well, I can't tell you how many times I've had people demand to me that this verse is telling that they live post-flood. And every time I ask them where it says that, they quote this verse and it doesn't say anything about the flood. <laughs> in fact, yeah. we're in verse 4. Uh, the flood is not even mentioned for the very first time until verse 17. That's a, a full 13 verses later. So now let, let me go over this very quickly, because, again, it's a very simple thing to understand, but you just have to kind of notice it. So 
Nephilim were in the earth in those days and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they brought children to them, okay? So when was that? That becomes the question. When was that? That the sons of God came in into the, well, verse one told us. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and took them wives. So when did this, when are those days? Those days were when man began to multiply a face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Now the question becomes, well, when was that? Well, I have no idea. It could have been as early as when Adam and Eve's children started having children. But the yeah. point is, that's those days. That's what it means. Um, so then the question becomes, well, when was afterward? Well, guess what? Afterward means afterward. <laughs> okay. So in other words, they began doing it in those days, which is when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. And they kept doing it after they first started it. So they kept doing it and they kept doing it and they kept doing it. But the point is that's all pre-flood. The flood brought this entire scheme to an end. See that? So later in the Bible, when it refers to uh, giant people again, like uh, where it says something like uh, that uh, the Israelites were but like locusts to this guy's knee. You know what I mean? When they talk about like the Canaanites or um, what do yes. you think those were? Okay. Now I'm going to just. Do you think those are just yeah. giant humans or do you think there's any, do you think maybe angels came back down after the flood and started like wooing some ladies again? <laughs> or, uh... So look, I'm going to just for a minute, I'm going to treat you as if we were debating. Okay. So sure. you, you said uh, post flood, there's quote unquote giant people again, but for one, I don't know what you mean by the vague, generic, subjective, multi-usage and undefined English term giant. And I don't know where we ran into it that you're referring to again. So the yeah. Nephilim were <laughs> never really described as giants, were they? Well, it just I said that they were giants in those hold days, on, but, right? But, but see, okay. I can't answer that until I okay. know what you mean by the word giant. So um, quite a bit larger than us. Okay, that's fair enough. Okay, now here's something very, very important. Uh, remember I said there's such a thing as word meaning or definition, but there's also word usage, and mm -hmm. those two things can be very different? Okay, Yeah. now it's only in modern times that we use the English word giant to mean something subjective about unusual height. And it is subjective, of course, because uh, by giants, some people mean a few inches taller than average. Some people mean a few feet. Some people mean entire body lengths, right? Like what's a giant to, a nor uh, to uh, some of these um, northern European guys who can be like 775 versus what is a giant to a pygmy, males of whom average 411, right? So it's totally subjective. But okay, that's fair enough. The important thing is, when you see the word giant, the English word giant in the Bible, it has nothing to do with height whatsoever, usual or unusual. And here's why. Okay. Here's why. The English word giant comes from the Greek word gigantes. And what happened is the Septuagint rendered 
okay, not even translated, rendered both the word Nephilim and the word Rephaim, and incidentally, the word Giborim, all as gigantes. And let me just pause a second to point out what a horrible idea that was, that you would render three very, very different words with one single word. That just caused a mess. So some English Bibles just followed the Septuagint, and where they see gigantes, they use the word giants. But since those word, that word gigantes is rendering Nephilim or Rephaim or Giborim, you can't just say, well, that means they were unusually tall, because that's not what that word is doing. That word is rendering three different Hebrew words. And um, can I get a definition of those words real fast? Yeah, curious. Sure. So Nephilim, uh, here's the, <laughs> this is really interesting. Okay, um, Nephilim refers to what we just read. It refers to um, angel-human hybrids who live pre-flood. Now, there's a debate about does the term Nephilim come from the Hebrew root Nephal or the Aramaic root Nephilah? Now, Nafal refers to fall or fallen or to fall or to cause to fall. Okay. Now, some scholars tell us that the Aramaic Nephilah means giant. But then that only begs the question, what does giant mean? And then we're, we're back full circle, right? And yet I can quote to you a scholar I did in my books. I quote to you one very qualified scholar who says that, but another very qualified uh, scholar who says, no, it has nothing to do with giants. So I just figure I'll let them fight it out amongst themselves. So the most common understanding of Nephilim is that it comes from a word that means fall, fallen, to cause to fall. And then if you want to say it means giant, then you've got to have the discussion about what that means. Okay, now, Rephaim are strictly post-flood, good old-fashioned human beings. And Giborim, this is an interesting one, because I can't tell you the number of people who speak of Giborim as if it's a people group. But it, it, it's not whatsoever. It merely refers to being might or mighty. So when you see uh, in Genesis 6-4, these were the mighty men, that's the word right there, mighty men, um, mighty Gibor, Giborim. So that's why this, the Septuagint really made a big mess, because now there's people who will read through an English Bible, and they're saying, well, giant, 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 it's all the same stuff. No, it's, you need to understand that you read. In Genesis 6-4 and in Numbers 13-33, when you see the English word giant, that is rendering Nephilim. In every single other case in a modern-day English Bible, it's Rephaim or Repha. That's it. Okay, so the last one you said, Giforim, is that was that the the great men? Giborim. Giforim. Yeah. Gibor, like um, with a B. Giborim. Giborim. Okay, I'm gonna keep butchering that, but well, the the, the point <laughs> uh, is, it's that it's a descriptive. Do you know who they were? Well, that's what I'm saying. They were nothing. It's just a descriptive term that means might or mighty. That's it. 
Okay, the Mighty Men. Okay, that's fascinating right. too. So, for I mean, example, I'm thinking example, of the Mighty Men, and I'm thinking about yeah. big giant people. I'm thinking about like the Philistines. I'm thinking about you know Goliath. Okay, but it seems but like here's a pretty the mighty issue. man. Okay, okay. but um, Gibor or plural Giborim is a term that's used of Nephilim. Sure, yes, it's also used of some of David's soldiers. It's also used of angels. It's also used of Boaz. It's also used of God himself. And I mean, in Isaiah 9, 6, El Gibor, it's right there, the mighty God. So it just means might or mighty, period. Yeah, that's it, okay. full stop. All right, okay. So then, um, so, um, it, yes, go ahead. I was going to say, so what, so what does that mean for giants in quotation marks what does that mean for or very large men what is uh, later in the bible so yeah i would ask who what very large men later in the bible uh the very large men that uh the israelites ran into oh yeah <laughs> and see uh the reason i'm kind of treating this um as if I was being combative, it's so that the audience gets an idea of the back and forth and how to really uh, tackle these issues with one side uh, saying one thing and then the other side saying the other, and then we're coming to understandings, okay? So I just want to keep emphasizing that. It's not like I'm getting on your case, you know? <laughs> okay. So now, whoa, blah, blah, blah. We go to Deuteron um, Numbers 13. 33, right? So now that's the second reference in the Bible to Nephilim, but that's post-flood. So how could it be that there's post-flood Nephilim if I just told you they didn't survive? Okay, well, maybe they didn't survive, but maybe they somehow returned, right? So that would be a different story, yeah? Well, number one, there's absolutely no indication that they returned. There's absolutely not a single word about that Oh, uh, more angels fell and they did it all again. Remember, I pointed out there's only a one-time fall of angel in the Bible, and Jude and Second Peter specify that the angels that sinned were incarcerated. So they're certainly not doing it again. And uh, there's indication in Ezekiel, I believe it's 31. It's a very interesting metaphor. Uh, likening Satan to a huge tree and this and that. And it's it, may, it makes it relatively clear that when the loyal angels saw what happened to the fallen angels, they were like, uh-uh-uh, uh-uh, buddy, we, we're not doing that. So like I said, there's only a one-time fall of angels in the Bible. So that's out, out the window right there. In fact, um, I know that L.A. Marzulli takes that, what he calls a multiple uh, incursion view, and Rob Skiba used to get on his case about it, pointing out that there's no such thing in the Bible, period. None. Of course, Skiba, uh, rest in peace, um, Skiba came up with this, or, you know, popularized uh, a survival of the Nephilim genetically through one of the wives of Noah's sons. Well, again, that's just something he had to invent because there is no such thing in the Bible, no explanation for it. And then if we say that the flood was to be rid of Nephilim, that implies that God failed. It's like they found a loophole that God must have missed, right? So let's look okay. at – Yes. Oh, I was just going to say, okay. So maybe there's not Nephilim post-flood. 
Well, but but it, there is a reference to them. So let's look at that because this is very important. This is actually the mother of all Nephilim verses, all two of them. But you're going to end up finding out that this whole talk about Nephilim, especially in the modern day, is based on one single verse. So let's look at it. Okay. Uh, they brought to the people of Israel a bad report, sometimes translated evil report, of the land they spied out, saying the land through which we had gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem um, to be to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Okay? Now, Something that's very, very that important. That sounds huge. Yeah. For grasshoppers. I, yeah. I'm just curious. How yeah. big do you think these men or Nephilim or giants were? Well. Do you have any guesses? I mean, this can be complete <laughs> speculation here, but. Um, just let me work through this material slightly because that, that. And the answer will will the question will dissolve itself as we go through this just a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. The issue is that it's very common to just pick up this one single verse and run with it and build an entire all-encompassing theory upon it. But here's the issue: if we read the narrative, if we actually interact with the narrative of Numbers 13. We see that 12 spies were sent into the land, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're reconnoitering it. They come back um, and they report this. Okay, now listen to this carefully. We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Okay? That's the original report. And that's accepted as is. Okay? Next verse, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses saying, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. So that's interesting. He quieted the people, which implies that they were disturbed. Well, why were they disturbed? Well, if you notice, uh, they reported that the people are strong and they have cities that are fortified and large. Now, Think about the cultural context. The Israelites at this time are itinerant tent dwellers, right? And now they're being told they're going to have to fight people who live in very large fortified cities. You could see how that'd be intimidating at the very least, right? Mm -hmm. So then Caleb is like, get her done, you know? <laughs> now listen, here's the very next verse. Then the men who had gone up with us uh, said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. Okay. So what happens is we end up finding out that Joshua sides with Caleb. So you basically now have Caleb and Joshua uh, against the 10 other spies. So Caleb is saying, get her done. The other 10 are saying, no, we're not going to be able to do it. 
So now instantly they're showing themselves to be at the very least unfaithful and disloyal. So that alone is, has to have us questioning their character. Now here's the next verse. And I already read it. So they brought up to the people of Israel a bad report of the land, right? And they go on from there. So basically we get an original report that's accepted as is. We have the encouragement from Caleb. We have discouragement from the 10. And then the narration told us now they gave their own report, which is a bad report. And notice that in their report, they say, uh, the land devours its inhabitants. Well, wait a minute. That's a straight up contradiction of the original report that described it as a land that flows with milk and honey and had plenty of fruit. That's a straight up contradiction right there. Now they say all the people we saw of it are in, of great height. Well, well, but hold on. First of all, the original report described the people as being strong nothing about height. And even in their original discouragement, they said, we are not able to go up against these people for we are, they are stronger than we. But all of a sudden they embellish this and they decide to claim that all of them are of great height, which incidentally is subjective, but okay, that's fine. So at least at this point, they're unfaithful, disloyal, contradictory, and embellishing. Then they say they saw Nephilim, now, the original report specified the people they saw, uh, the Anakim, Amalekites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Canaanites. There was no mention of Nephilim. So these guys just, and again, they embellish it. All of a sudden, they're mentioning Nephilim. And if you notice, earlier in the chapter, it's specified where the Anakim live. And now in this portion, it's specified where the Amalekites live. It's specified where the Hittites live. It's specified where the Jebusites live. It's specified where the Amorites live. It's specified where the Canaanites live. But these guys are not able to specify where Nephilim lived. So that's a missing data point at the very least. Next, they appear to claim that the Anakim are related to Nephilim, which there's no indication of that whatsoever. And then they talk about how Nephilim are very, 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 very tall. Now, if you recall Genesis 6, 4, we had no physical description of Nephilim, right? Remember? Yeah. No such thing. So when we think of Nephilim as being very, very, very tall, guess what? That's based on this one single verse alone. So what I'm getting at here is that these guys were super intimidated they're unfaithful, disloyal, they're contradictory, they're embellishing, they're just making up stuff. And they just told a uh, don't go in the woods type of uh, fear tactics, scaremongering tall tale. They just made it up. And, and one reason you can know that is that, that they were post-flood Nephilim. That's in this verse. That doesn't exist anywhere else in the whole entire Bible. That Anakim are related to them, that's only in this one verse. There's nothing whatsoever like that in the whole entire Bible. And that Nephilim were very, very tall, that's only in this one verse. There's nothing like that in the whole entire Bible. So that means that essentially anyone 
claiming those things is forced to rely on some of the most unreliable guys in the whole entire Bible, and they have to base their entire theory on one verse, which they then turn into a worldview philosophy, a hermeneutic, whereby they then start misinterpreting other verses, such as claiming that Genesis 6-4 is talking about post-flood Nephilim, right? I mean, I, I'm realizing I'm plowing through this stuff, but um, those are just facts. These guys made five assertions altogether about which the whole entire Bible knows nothing. Um, that the land was bad, not known in the whole entire Bible. That all the people were a great height, not known in the entire Bible. Post-flood Nephilim, Anakin relation to them, that they were very tall. None of that exists anywhere else in the whole entire Bible whatsoever. And so these guys actually contradict Caleb, Joshua, Moses, God, and the rest of the Bible. So I'm going to side with Caleb, Joshua, Moses, God, and the rest of the Bible. I'm not going to side with these guys. Okay. <laughs> okay. So in your view, these were there were no descendants of the Nephilim among these people that they encountered. Not only that there weren't any, there could not have been because there's no such thing as post-flood Nephilim. That's it, period. These guys just made up a tall tale. Incidentally, okay. this is interesting. Let me mention this. This is interesting. In Deuteronomy 1, Moses relates this event and listen to what he says. He says... Where is it? Here it is. Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Isn't that interesting? Now, when Moses relates that event, he completely ignores Nephilim. He doesn't even mention that they said that. It's absolutely irrelevant because it wasn't real. Moses is concerned about the real problem, which is the people like the Anakim, who incidentally, in Deuteronomy 2, they're referred to as having been tall. Okay, now that's just subjective. Um, in fact, I am, uh, how tall are you guys, by the way? I am about 5'10". Okay, I'm six foot even. You know how many times in my life I've been called a giant? Many, many, many times. And six foot isn't even unusual. Okay. Of the Anakin, we're told that they were tall. Whatever that means. Because one interesting fact is that the Israelites of these days, of the biblical times, the males average five foot even or five three so what is tall to a guy that's five or five three i mean could be six foot six five seven foot i mean even something like that would be tall i know i have a friend who's six two and i it's noticeable to me i take notice of it even though it's two inches but anyhow so it's interesting that Moses just absolutely disregards the part they made up, really. Um, well, yeah, they did say taller, but he's, he doesn't even mention them. That's it. So, yeah, basically, I think these guys were either 
inventing mythology on the spot or just playing off of what by then had become mythology about Nephilim. Okay. Interesting. Um, so when you have someone like uh, the Philistines, right, um, Goliath, they, that was just a very tall person. Ah, yes. I wouldn't even say, uh, okay, let's, let's talk about Goliath for a second. I can't even tell you how many people have told me that Goliath was a Nephil. There's just zero indication of that whatsoever. He's consistently referred to as a Repha because he was part of the Rephaim. Okay, so he was a Gathite, Philistine, Anakim, Rephaim, meaning that he lived in the city of Gath, which was part of the territory of the Philistines, and he was one of the sons of Anak. So he was in the 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 Anakim were a subgroup of Rephaim, kind of like saying the Anakim are a clan of the tribe of Rephaim, right? And that's it. He was in uh, one of the Anak, and he was a Repha. But the issue is this now. According to the Masoretic text, he was just shy of 10 feet. But according to the earlier Septuagint and the earlier Dead Sea Scrolls and even Flavius Josephus, he was just shy of seven feet. So there you have three witnesses that are earlier than the Masoretic text who all agree he was just shy of seven feet. So that's the preponderance of the earliest evidence. You know, okay. what can I tell you? Okay. Um, oh, but, 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 so... okay, yeah. Okay, one more point. We need to think for a second that if we are going to correlate Goliath to Nephilim because he was allegedly very, very, very tall, well, guess what? That doesn't work anymore because we just learned that the very concept that Nephilim were very, very, very tall. That was just made up stuff. We have no reliable physical description of them whatsoever. So we can no longer correlate quote unquote giants to Nephilim. There's just no data in the Bible for that. How do you see the Nephilim? Like even if it's speculation? Yeah. So let me, that's good question because this is the second of two verses that talk about Nephilim. And that was perfect timing, because now we can just say, this is the Bible teaching on the Nephilim. They were fathered by sons of God who are angels and daughters of men, pre-flood, so they're hybrids. The flood brought them to a complete and utter end. They didn't survive. They didn't return. Full stop. End of story. And later on, some guys made up a tall tale that they saw them. Um, and there's so many indications that what they said was just a deception. That's it, period, full stop. That's why I'm telling you, <laughs> you're not going to make a living off of a ministry based on saying, yeah, these guys live pre-flood and that was it, period. See ya. <laughs> That's it. Okay, so outside of, hmm, I guess outside of a biblical context, do you think that, so, okay, so um, do you think, I, I suppose, 
uh, that angels can still come amongst humans? Do you think Absolutely. angels still come down? Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, do you think that uh, demons are fallen angels? Oof, now you're getting thought? me into another of my favorite subjects. <laughs> you know what? Um, if you don't mind, let me throw something in. Because I know some people are pulling out their hair saying, Ethiopic Enoch, Ethiopic Enoch. So I, I should just talk about that for a second. Okay, sure. now, Ethiopic Enoch was written millennia after the Torah. I, I think it's interesting for historical context, cultural context, grammatical context. Yeah, but uh, it also contradicts the Bible a lot. I mean, I wrote a book called uh, In Consideration of the Books of Enoch, and I have an entire chapter just on the contradictions. But let's just uh, talk about what, what it says about Nephilim. The most relevant parts would be that it has Nephilim as being miles tall, okay? Miles. I say that makes for great folklore. It doesn't make for good reality, <laughs> For one, they couldn't possibly consume enough calories just to stay alive, much less to move around. And, I, okay, I know that people will talk about how the pre-flood world was different. The uh, hyperbaric issue made it so that there was more oxygen. I understand all that stuff. I also understand some dinosaurs were huge, but the average size of a dinosaur is the size of a sheep. Okay, let's just I'm say that. I'm not even sure I believe in dinosaurs, but... Anyways, keep going. Or at least the dinosaurs that they tell us about. I'm not sure. Let, let's call that another show. Okay. <laughs> uh, but you see what I mean. And now the issue, you know, what's interesting is in Enoch, you don't have post-flood Nephilim, by the way. Uh, not physically. Uh, Enoch claims that demons or unclean spirits are the spirits of dead Nephilim. So, even in interesting, first, even in first Enoch, you don't have post flood Nephilim physically, and also incidentally, the only place I know in any apocrypha or pseudepigrapha that you do have post flood Nephilim is in Jubilees, where they only last until the time of Noah's grandsons, and that's it. So even in the one single place you could possibly find them, even though it's written millennia after the Torah, you still only get them till the time of Noah's grandsons and end of story. So, okay, angels now. <laughs> Woof. Um, so you had um, mentioned Watchers when we first started. Yeah. Now, Watchers, it's just a second temple era way to refer to angels. That's all it really is. And that's why you find the word watchers in the book of Daniel, because Daniel was written during that second temple era. Okay. So really that's all it is. So uh, sons of God, angels, watchers, it's all the same stuff. And if we have time and if you're interested later on, we can talk about um, cherubim and seraphim. Let's set that aside for a second. Yeah. Now, uh, tradi traditionally, the identification of demons is that they're either fallen angels or, or that they're not. So if they're fallen angels, there's an oddity because angels and demons exhibit very different characteristics. So how could it be? 
Uh, but if they're not fallen angels, then what are they? Well, like I said, texts like uh, First Enoch, a.k.a. Ethiopic Enoch, claim that they are dead Nephilim. I actually think that was a good try. You know, that's a pretty good guess. I don't accept it, but I think it's a pretty good guess. So I'm just going to throw my own theory out at you, okay? okay. Let's see if we can. This is just me. Uh, I'll grant you when I wrote about this in one of my books, it took me like 30 pages just to explain it. So I'll just give you the short version. <laughs> um, so one very, very important thing to recognize is that angels are not spirits. If by spirits, spirits proper in and of themselves, we think of a disembodied entity because Every single time angels are described, they're described, like I already said, looking just like human males. And they're doing physical stuff. They're walking, they're eating, they're fighting, whatever. So is and, this when we're going to get into the cherubim and seraphim? When we no. start talking about like these characters that have like 4,000 eyes? No. And, okay, that, that's... Oh, uh, okay, okay. Maybe I should I've mention... Heard angels described as all okay. kinds of like... Yeah, let's um, let me just say one word about that then, because then I, I see how that would be important now. Angels, cherubim, seraphim are three different categories of being. Okay, they have different job titles, they have different job functions, and they look different from one another. So, like in logic, they would call it the law of identity. They are three different things, so that. If uh, if cherubim and seraphim don't deliver messages, by definition, they're not angels because angels are the messengers. That's what angel means, malakim, um, angelos. That, that's what it means. Uh, cherubim are referred to as, in scholarly literature, they're referred to as throne guardians. Well, an, uh, angels aren't that. Neither are seraphim. Uh, these are different things. Just like we can't say humans and bovines are the same because we all live on earth. Well, no, they're different categories of being. Angels look like human males, period. That's what it is. Interesting. Okay. Now, I kind of I kind of had a whole subsect, like all of those beings were angelic beings and they were different yeah. flavors. I mean, that's okay. like... I mean, look, if you're just having a common conversation, yeah, you can say that because people understand that very easily. But when we're getting down to really technical stuff, it's just not accurate, right? Okay. Because angelic so beings are only angels. angels. Yes. And the watchers looked like men. Yes. Okay. In fact, we're told in Psalms that we were made a little lower than the angels. Wrap your mind around that. So that's an interesting one. Um, in fact, now, that's... Lucifer was an angel. Do you take that as a... No. So Lucifer was not an angel. He's a cherub. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We're getting... What is he okay. guarding? What's that? What was he guarding? Um, what was he guarding? What was he guarding? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um the reason cherubim are referred to as throne guardians in scholarly literature is because you see them performing, performing guardian type 
actions in the Bible. So for instance, remember when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden? Who, who did God station there to protect the entrance to the garden? It was cherubim. So they're, they're fulfilling that guardian role. And then on top of the mercy seat of the ark, what was on top of it? It wasn't angels. It was cherubim. So they're, guard, they're like uh, symbolically guarding the top of the ark, the mercy seat. And then the most descriptive thing we're told about angels comes from, I mean, cherubim, comes from Ezekiel chapters 1 and chapter 10, where they're seen around this sort of animated uh, throne that's flying around. They're right around it, right? So you can see that they're in that guardian position. So I'm going to show my ignorance right now. This is something that my mom told me, and I'm pretty, I thought it was in the Bible. I assumed it was because my mom told me about it. So uh, Lucifer, I'm just going to tell you is what I know, right? So according to my mom, Lucifer was an angel. What you said, he's a cherubim, right? So uh, he was one of the angelic beings up there. Uh, so beautiful that music would emit from his body. Um. He was jealous of human beings because of God's love for them. He was jealous of God's power and wanted his throne, basically. Uh, he uh, got about two-thirds of the angels uh, to turn on God um, and like basically tried to, to have a coup against God. Uh, this is when he fell. So, uh, so God smacked him down, uh, sent him to this earthly plane, sort of. And those angels that had gone with him were the demons. And he, so this is, this is what my understanding is. So those, so the demons are those angels or some form of angelic beings that uh, took Satan's side or Lucifer's side rather and um, th this is where we're at. Okay. So Tell you, where? So uh, how far off am I? <laughs> well, it's not you. It's your mom. So tell your mom okay. I give her I give her a B plus. A B plus. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and give her a kiss for me. Oh, well. All right. Um, okay. Ezekiel twenty eight. Now it would. Again, in one of my books, I argued extensively about why I think Ezekiel 28 is talking about Satan. I can't do that here. It's just way too much material. But it says this, um, blah, 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 blah. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, right? Um, I have set thee so that, you know what, I've, I'm going to switch to the ESV. That way I don't have to do all these these and thous stuff. Okay. Which I don't mind. I've read yeah. the King James plenty of times. but uh, I use the NLT myself. That's oh, okay. Like. Uh, let's see. Oh, guardian cherub. In the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And then, after calling this being a cherub, it says in um, Isaiah, I'm dyslexic, so it's either Isaiah 12, 
לנשיא. It's either 12-14 or 14-12. That's, that's how I get it messed up. Um, okay. It talks about how he was in Eden. So here you have this cherub who is said to have been in Eden. So, I mean, come on. <laughs> how can you um, get away from the fact that it has to be Satan? Straight up. So he's a cherub. And he... Uh, somehow, for some reason, that is not specified, but obviously he is doing, you remember the, the, what's called the five eye wills, right? Um, one of them is that he's going to set up his throne above the stars of God and all this stuff. So what he's doing is trying to usurp God. And it says that he um, did something to cause the fall of not two thirds, but one third of angels. Okay. I, okay. I knew it was a, a third. Now, <laughs> I'm glad that it's a third and not two thirds. Yeah. That's scary. Okay. <laughs> uh, in, in my theory, Genesis 3 is recording when he fell. And then okay. Genesis 6 is recording when angels fell. So for somehow um, Satan motivated the angels to commit their fallen act although he wasn't involved in it himself. And now, now we understand angels and cherubim a little better. It kind of makes sense how they could have mated with human women's, but Satan couldn't have. He just doesn't have the equipment. He doesn't look like a human male. He's okay. just a wholly different kind of Later guy. Later right? in the Bible, do they describe uh, what cherubs look like? Yeah, in Ezekiel chapters 1 and chapter 10. So you're talking about... Uh, beings with four faces and four wings and hove-like feet. Okay. So I and they have hands or arms. So I, I guess you could kind of picture. This is they just might have four appendages. Well, I no, the, you know. yeah, I think they do. <laughs> no, they do because okay. it says that they have arms or hands under their wings, while they have yeah. four wings. So. That's what I'm saying is that's completely different from a, a being that looks like a human male. It's a whole different ballgame. Okay. So now, you don't think that they necessarily have maybe four penises as well? Oh, <laughs> They might. I don't know. I mean, the thing is that they have one face that looks like a human, one face that looks like a griffin vulture or an eagle, one face, face that looks like an ox or a bull, and one face that looks like a lion. So if you look below the That's belt, do they have do they have four different schmeckles? I mean, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. That's that's interesting. <laughs> I don't uh, want to know. <laughs> that, you know, I mean, how did people back in the day come up with stories like griffins and different like, you know, and uh, and minotaurs and different things? Like, I wonder if these were angelic or demonic beings that were seen and described. Well, Okay, now, that's a very good and important point. So now, when you think about that it was a cherub in the garden, that's Satan, and then the uh, artificers were told to make cherubim for the top of the ark, well, they had to know what they looked like, 
And then they were told to make cherubim for some of the curtains in the ark. Well, they had to see them at some point or be told what they look like. So guess what? To me, we're back to the Tower of Babel. We're told, we're back to that this was commonly known in shared history, what cherubim look like. And then eventually with time, they just became all kinds of claims about different kinds of chimeras and griffins and just all these combinations that are based on what originally are actually cherubim. It's the same kind of thing, right? Where after the Tower of Babel, the myths and legends just came to be and changed these things a little bit here and there. So now, I tell you what, let's talk about seraphim for a moment, and then we can loop back to the question you had asked about demons and angels. Sure. Okay, seraphim is uh, tricky because we're only told about them in one single text, Isaiah 6. Um, So there's not much we can say about them, except that they have six wings, they have feet, and they have hands or arms, and they have faces. That's pretty much it. And uh, their role, I personally call them keepers of the eternal flame. And I only came up with that term, not only because it sounds cool, but because in Isaiah 6, they're seen... One of them goes to the altar before the Lord and gets a burning coal from it, right? And touches uh, Isaiah's mouth, symbolizing that he'd been cleansed. So that's about it. So there you go. One category is angels who look just like human males, no wings, no halos. One category is cherubim, four faces, four wings, hoof-like feet, arms or hands. Another category is seraphim, six wings, feet, hands or arms, and ahead, you know. Out of curiosity, where do you think the halo came out? Where where is that uh, originated? Is yeah. is it described that uh, that angels have a halo, no. or is that biblically no, no, no whatsoever? Um, okay. I tell you. So what's interesting is that um, say okay, let's talk about oof, the ark again, right? Now the that ark. we understand, now that we know, the ark of the covenant was taught. You're talking with, about okay. The That's Ark what I was going to say. The Ark yeah. of the Covenant. Right. That, that, no, it's, that yeah. quote that Noah yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so now that we know it was topped with cherubim, guess what? 99% of all the depictions you've ever seen of the Ark of the Covenant, yes, including in Raiders of the Lost Ark, is inaccurate because it's showing a human form with two wings. Well, there's no such thing in the Bible, period. An accurate Ark of the Covenant would have a being with four faces and four wings, straight up, period. That's hard to depict. Like, I'm trying yeah. to figure out how that would actually look. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've been Googling pictures of the uh, cherubim as we're speaking right now. I've been looking at yeah. it. <laughs> it is so, pretty fascinating. I'm going to find a cool one for our cover art for this episode. <laughs> oh, um. Gosh, what was the the question that led led us to okay, that? Okay, so we were talking about the Ark of the Covenant. We were talking about um, cherubim, sephirim, <laughs> cherubim, sephirim, uh, seraphim, seraphim. Yes. Yeah. And uh, where were we going with that? Man, what was it? Our listeners are going to be yelling right now. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, "We're able to rewind. You can't rewind. We're able to rewind." Okay, so demons. Let's talk about yeah, demons. Okay. 
Oh, I know what it was. Uh, okay, Halos. Okay. Halos. Halos. Yeah, there we go. See, I got you, audience. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where did we get the idea that angels have wings, right? Well, what happened is in the early few centuries A.D., it actually came out of artwork because since it was known that biblically angels look just like human males, then if you're doing a painting or a sculpture or something and uh, someone looks at it, they're like, well, which one's the angel? <laughs> it looks exactly like some guy, right? So then artists started adding wings and adding halos just so that the person looking at the artwork would know who's who. That's where it came from. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Angels and demons. <laughs> We're on track, folks. We're on track. Okay. So, again, this is my theory. And it all began with me pointing out that we have to understand that biblically angels are described as looking like human males. And there's no statement whatsoever that they morph or shapeshift or take on bodies. There's nothing like that whatsoever so the logical conclusion is that angels are i'll put it this way they're as physical as jesus is post resurrection where you could touch them they could eat they could walk on the ground but they have access to what we would call other realms or dimensions or whatever so that they can be visible or invisible they could walk through a solid object right they have these capabilities we don't that's how I would describe Interesting. it. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Just like Jesus posed resurrection, put it that way. That kind of makes it really accessible. Okay. So then that's part of why back to Genesis six, that's how angels could mate with human women because they are physical in a physicality of their own sort. Right. Um, if they look like human males, there's no reason to think they didn't look like human males below the belt. So there you go. And, again, we're made a little lower than they. So, there you go. Okay, now. Sorry, give me one second. Tony, are you playing with marbles? What is that? <laughs> oh, no, thumbtacks. Okay, quit playing with those. I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> I kept hearing that. <laughs> sorry. Huh? Okay, so they were physical. And they definitely had penises. And for them. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if they look like human males, why say they were missing the one key feature of the human anatomy? Why? Yeah. In fact, let me throw this in just for the sake of polemics, because people will say, well, wait a minute. If angels were never meant by God to mate with human beings, why did he create them with that equipment? Right. And I yeah. would just say, I'll answer you that. After you answer me, why God put the forbidden tree in the garden? There you go. Okay. Same kind of problem, right? I mean, he he had his greater purposes for doing that stuff, even if he knew it would lead to sin. And let me just throw in one more thing that I, I definitely know I have to touch upon before we get to my theory, um, which is that um, people will say, well, Jesus said angels don't get married. Have you ever heard that? No, but yeah. tell me Oh, about man, it. people say that all the time. Uh, he said they don't get married. Okay. Well, 
the issue is that uh, when Jesus was asked a question about marriage in general, what he said is that, um, I think it's Matthew, I'm looking it up right now, I believe it's Matthew 10, 24, no, it's not, okay. Um, sorry to do this, but we're doing like uh, live on the spot stuff. Okay, so here we go. Matthew 22. And Jesus was asked about marriage. And what he ends up talking about is that in the resurrection, they, talking about humans, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. Okay, now that's very important because he's very specific. He's not just talking about angels. He's talking about angels in heaven, so the loyal ones. They're the ones that don't get married. And that's why okay. the ones that did get married, that's why they're considered sinners because they did what Jude puts as having left their first estate. So there's no way Jesus said angels don't get married. He's just telling us the loyal ones don't do it. Okay, there you go. There's that. So I have a question for you. <laughs> yeah. The fallen angels, did they all die in the flood? Um, Are those fallen angels still among us now? Okay, let's get to that. Um, oh, it'd be, okay. <laughs> it's tough to say that angels died because, again, they have access to other realms or dimensions, but Jude and Second Peter tell us that they were incarcerated. That's for sure. Okay? okay. Both of them say that. Now, Peter uses uh, the term Tartarus. He says that's where they're incarcerated. Now, a lot of people confuse this, so Unrelated let me just explain. To Tartarus, it's not that sauce people eat with fish. Sorry. Tartar hey, sauce? Ken, uh, you're freezing, boom. buddy. Come on. All right. I'm, we might have lost you. Tony, can you still hear me? Okay. No, um, that was just a bad joke go. that failed. Sorry, but, buddy. Uh, yeah, you froze there for a minute. <laughs> yeah, that was a delay, just, too. I, I think so you, my joke was actually great. So we actually we missed your joke. <laughs> oh, okay. Here we go. Take two. You know, a lot of people okay, don't know this, so I should explain it. Uh, Tartarus is not that sauce people eat with fish. You know, tartar sauce? Oh, you guys need a rim shot sound effect. Okay, that was a terrible joke. You need a rim shot sound <laughs> that effect. That was a terrible joke. <laughs> All right, forget that. I love it. Okay. okay, Peter says that they were incarcerated in Tartarus. And now that's the only place in the entire Bible where the word Tartarus uh, appears. So I think that he was homiletically speaking to his Greek audience. They would have understood what he's talking about because in Greek myth, Tartarus is the lowest place of the abyss. The abyss being the, the bottomless pit, right? And just wrap your mind around what kind of realities we're talking about, where you could talk about the lowest part of a bottomless pit, right? It doesn't make sense, but it's just to emphasize that's how uh, bad this place is. It's, it's for the worst of the worst dudes. It's for the titans. It's for the half-breed so gods, whatever, you know. 
my uh, ADHD is going to force me to ask this. Uh, if you've ever listened to any of my interviews, you know that I go all over the place and I apologize. Yes, sir. Um, yes. <laughs> I was ready for that. I <laughs> what, what I'm curious about is I've heard people say things that like uh, pre-Jesus, what was heaven, right? They say like God's bosom and that that is different than heaven. What what are what are your thoughts on that? Where, <laughs> man, you're killing me! <laughs> oh, you're killing me because that's a whole can of worms right there. I'm I can. Ken, take we're just going to have to have you back on. Is really yeah, um, because yeah. I wrote an entire book just about heaven and hell in the Bible. Uh, yeah, um, I want to hear about it, man. Because yeah, well, I got homies that are universalists that are telling me uh, that everybody's going to heaven, and then I got uh, people that are telling me that that originally, uh, they're like the Jews don't even really believe in a hell. And then I've, I, you know, I've I've heard all kinds of stuff. So please tell me. Oh boy! <laughs> if you can, <laughs> you know, at hour number fifteen of this show, we're gonna get to demons. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, so my book is called What Does the Bible Say About Heaven and How? A Styled Supernology and Infernology. How do you like that, huh? And uh, <laughs> so my point in writing that book was, look, uh, in English, the word heaven actually renders a bunch of different Hebrew and Greek words, and the word hell actually renders a bunch of Hebrew and Greek words, and it's kind of making a mess of everything. So I just gave you the most basic version that I can because, man, that's a huge subject right there. So um, there's what scholars or theologians call the intermediate heaven, okay, now, that's the kind of place where, like in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, uh, where the sons of God come before God. And guess what? Satan came with them. So it's okay for Satan to go there before God into the intermediate heaven because that's not the eternal state. It's an intermediate place. Okay? So, so this is nothing to do with the Catholics and their, uh, what they call, what do they call that? Uh, purgatory. Purgatory. No, 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 no. Okay, okay. No, no, absolutely not. Um, so there's the intermediate heaven where the way I put it is that, and I wrote an entire book just on Satanology, by the way. The way I would put it is that uh, Satan was fired from his original job as a throne guardian, and then he was allowed to come before God every now and then, right, to report his doings. Uh, but then eventually, as is written about in Revelation 12, he's actually cast out and that's it. You're stuck on earth. That's it. You're done. And that's why he's really upset. So that was the intermediate heaven. If we're talking about the eternal state, and now we're talking about the new heavens, the new earth and the new Jerusalem, that's a whole different ballgame. See, is that pretty much, can we just... <laughs> Is that pretty much answer at least the the one question you had about it? Okay, so there was an intermediate heaven until Jesus came, uh, and then I would say that there'll be an intermediate heaven until this universe is just uh, destroyed, and there'll be a new heavens, a new earth, a new, a new Jerusalem. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, 
do is do you believe that people that sin against God, uh, uh, people that are blatantly living in sin, are they going to go to Tartarus? Are they going to hell? What what is hell? It's not Tartarus. Oh, man, or you're killing me. Killing. <laughs> is there a lake of fire? Killing. Are we good? <laughs> Um, considering how mentally exhausted I am at this point, I'm going to make an attempt to remember everything and just shoot really quick through it. So, um, in the Old Testament in Hebrew, there's, uh, the grave, the Sheol, right? That's just the grave. And before Jesus' resurrection, anybody and everybody who died went to Sheol. Okay. The grave, period. The grave, okay. Now, what we end up finding out from what Jesus said is that it was a two-compartment location with one side being called uh, Hades in Greek and the other side actually being called Paradise. Some people think of it as Abraham's bosom. That's okay. what I was referring to earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Abraham's yeah. bosom. Yeah. So then when people died before Jesus' resurrection, they would either go into one of those chambers or the other one. All right. Now, okay. what seems to happen is that when Jesus, um, after Jesus' crucifixion, he goes down into Sheol. And he announces, hey, I've defeated death, whatever he says, right? And he takes everybody who is in paradise. Keep in mind, he told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. But then then he tells Mary, don't latch on to me. I haven't ascended up to my father yet. Well, that just shows you that for then... The term paradise referred to that one chamber in Sheol. So Jesus takes everybody who is in paradise, Abraham's bosom, and he takes them into heaven. Okay? So now post-resurrection, anybody who is not what we call saved still goes down into Sheol, into Hades, and everybody who's saved goes up into the intermediate heaven. So is Hades a bummer? Well, yeah. We know because the... The, the rich man, excuse me, the rich man was there and he's saying, oh, that Lazarus would just dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue. I'm suffering in this place. You know, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. 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 100%. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So just like there's going to be a new heaven, there's going to be a new earth. There's right. going to be a new hell. Uh, so eventually it would appear that what happens is that... Uh, Hades is basically thrown into what's called the lake of fire, and that's the second death. Okay. That's what we would call H-E double hockey sticks, you know. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay, so now let's do demons. All right. All right, stop. (laughs) Please stop. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) There... Hey, Tony, can you mute his mic? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... so uh, so, No, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) 
So what I, what I was saying is that I thought that the folklore in Enoch about how uh, unclean spirits are the spirits of dead Nephilim, I said I think that was a pretty good try. But I got my own theory that I think is a bit better, so here it is. And we talked about how angels are as physical as Jesus is post-resurrection. And so my theory is this. When the flood came, God incarcerated the sinful fallen angels in Tartarus. And they're, get this, okay, this is the key. Their bodies are locked up but their spirits were left on earth and that's what we call demons. Interesting. So oh. Tartarus is a physical place. Uh, well, I mean, Kinda. that's, it's hard to say because again, angels are what we could call physical in a way, but then they have access to other realms or okay. dimensions. So, you know, Do you that's think a, Tartarus being the deepest part of a, you know, a bottom, yeah. right? Could that be the deepest part of Hades, or do you think it's a different place altogether? No. Um, well, I don't know. I don't know if I would care to speculate in that direction. But I'll, I'll, let me uh, just get into this, because that might explain some of it. So Tartar is being associated with the abyss, okay? Abyss meaning bottomless, okay? Now, if you notice, when Jesus is interacting with demons or unclean spirit, wicked spirits, lying spirits, there's various terms. When he's interacting with them, they're always terrified of what? They're terrified of being sent into the abyss. That's what they say specifically. Don't send us into the abyss before our time. That's what they're terrified about. Well, why? Well, my theory would be that it's because if the demons being the spirits of angels, if they're sent into the abyss, guess what? That means that they're going to be stuck down there and they're doing hard time. It could be centuries. It could be millennia that they're just stuck down there. Okay. They're, they're getting in fights in the exercise yard, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, that's why they're terrified. They don't want to be stuck down there. So that kind of associates demons with something to do with the abyss. And now, think about Revelation 9, where you have the opening of the abyss. And what comes out of it? Well, these beings that are very symbolically described, right? Uh, tails like scorpions, hair like women, faces like men, uh, locust-like, you know, all this stuff. To me, that's symbolic of that. That is when the the demons re-inhabit their fallen angel bodies, and now they're released upon the earth to wreak havoc. So that's important because biblically, there's no such thing as a, of a return of Nephilim, but there is such a thing as a return of fallen angels. So that's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. I like it. Can we take a two-second break? I have to pee terribly. <laughs> just turn <laughs> off your mic. Yeah, no, just turn it off. <laughs> All right, Tony. Uh, we can actually pause the recording. Do you want you guys want to do that real fast and take a two-second or like a let's take a two-minute break? Is that all right? Fair enough. Okay. Okay. Let's do it. Boom. Yeah. 
All right. Thank you, Ken, for letting me pee. My good, that was like Anytime. an Austin Powers, man. That was that was ridiculous. <laughs> I feel so much better. Oh. Okay, so just to recap, your theory on demons is that they are the temporarily disembodied spirits of fallen angels. Okay, and I'm I'm actually in full agreement with you on that. I think I that's how I think too. Okay, so okay, so see what I did, it's not like I invented a new theory about who demons are. It's just that I came up with the mechanism of how it could be that's that that that's what they are. That's all I did. So again, I'm going to throw curveballs because that's what I do. Now that they're disembodied, is that why they can't like procreate right. with humans yeah. again and make more right. Nephilim? Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay, and so. in, in, incidentally, why is it that demons like to possess people? It's like, well, because they used to inhabit a body and that's what they want to feel again. And why is it that demons want, want to be worshipped in the form of idols? Well, precisely because of that. They want to see themselves depicted as a form because that's what they used to be. See, that's why I'm saying that the theory that Nephilim are um, that demons are the spirits of dead Nephilim is pretty good, but I think that mine covers a lot more ground. It makes sense of a lot more of the material, and it puts it all together into a nice cohesive theory. So, when you say tempor- they're temporarily disembodied, is there going to be a point in time when they all get reconnected at once, or is it kind of like an, on an individual basis? Right. So this goes back to what I was saying about Revelation 9, which is that's when the abyss is opened up. And my theory is that that's when the demons go and re-inhabit their angel bodies. And now the fallen angels are let loose upon the earth to wreak havoc again. And that happened last year, right? Uh, not that I know of. <laughs> 2020. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's angels what we call feminists, like, uh, right? <laughs> fallen angels were led upon the earth and they were like, no way, I mean, we're out of here. <laughs> we're out of here. <laughs> it's too messy. What's, inter- what's interesting to me about this is that I think that a lot of what we would consider like demonic behavior or just like a colloquial sense it's when people have been disembodied from their spirit, like people who've been separated in some way. So I think there's some kind of connection, and that's how I'm kind of grasping all of this. Hmm. So interesting. Um, if you think ahead. about, go ahead again. Sorry. Like if you can, if we could just imagine for a moment, imagine that you could have a mind without a brain. I mean, I understand that's getting into substance dualism, but just imagine that for a second. If you could think about a mind without a brain, so it would have those capabilities that we generally think of of being uh, of a brain, but not attached to a brain so that it would be like um, on its own, right? It would basically be free-floating data, essentially, like software. And then if you could think of that software entering your brain and kind of taking over to whatever extent that's what it would be like to to be possessed by a demon it's this uh, like influence from without that has then come within if you see what i mean and now let me throw this in just for fun not really but 
Uh, it talks, we're told in the Bible that Satan entered Judas, right? Now, I spent days and days racking my brain about how could that happen? How could it actually happen? It's funny because my wife was telling me, man, the things you spend time thinking about. <laughs> but I was like, I want to I want to know. My wife how... says similar things to me. <laughs> yeah, because on the theory that cher- guess what? Cherubim would also be as physical as Jesus' post-resurrection, physical but with other capabilities, whatever. Then how could it be that? A physical being like a cherub could enter a physical being like a human. It just didn't make sense. And I could probably invent stuff about quantum entanglement and whatever. The ability to to uh, be in uh, the same dimensional space as a three-dimensional, whatever. I could make up some fancy sounding stuff. But then I realized, hey, Ezekiel tells us something very specific about cherubim. It's that... As they moved around with this movable throne, that there were these wheels within wheels next to them. Okay, that's uh, what's called Ophanim in the Hebrew, and it says something really interesting. It said that the spirit of the cherubim were in the Ophanim, so the spirit of the cherubim were in the wheels within wheels, so that they have the capability of removing their spirit from their bodies temporarily. So that's a very interesting way to kind of understand how it is that you could have these disembodied entities like spirits who could inhabit one body or another. And let me throw this in. You think about the technology we have today uh, for flying drones across the planet from the pilot. The pilot could be here in America the drones flying around the Middle East, and in a very low-tech manner of speaking, it's as if their mind is in the drone because they're like integrated into its visual centers and sensors, and they can move it around. So I would say that touching on some really interesting stuff. Yeah, because if you think of a, like a transhumanist scheme. The next phase of that technology would be that you're basically uploading your mind into the device itself. We're not quite there yet, but I'm saying so. It's you interesting. Talk to Elon think, Musk. But it's interesting <laughs> if you think about that the cherubim are essentially piloting these wheels by putting their spirits within them temporarily. It's kind of fascinating that that's the way our technology is going. Yeah, it really is fascinating, man. And so I see, really my, my point, actually, my, oh, sorry, go ahead. Finish your point. My point is this. So you could say, hey, this is just a bunch of paranormal mumbo jumbo. But I'm talking about how listen to all this stuff that for all these millennia just sounded like a bunch of theological made up stuff. But wait a minute. We're starting to see this stuff in the, in our, the real life world scientifically i mean we're starting to see the development of this kind of technology when all along we could have dismissed it as a bunch of fairy tales in the bible well maybe they aren't so do you think that demons when they're reconnected could incarnate into like an ai or into a any kind of like does it have to be a biological body or does it can be a mechanistic body i mean it would just make sense to me that there's a one-to-one correlation so that they would just return to their original bodies. However, I think what you're talking about is really interesting 
in terms of that we're told about an image uh, of a beast that comes to life. So, yeah. well, what on earth does that mean? Well, we're not really sure. And again, all those millennia ago and centuries ago in modern times, you could have said, that's just a bunch of fairy tales in the Bible. How could an image come to life? But now we're looking at the technology around us even today. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Who knows what that is? It could be a robot. It could be uh, what they call strong AI, right? Like um, AI that's actually self-aware. And you could totally, even with today's uh, sort of low tech, you could say that if you build a robot and you give it uh, even a low level um, amount of AI, that is an image that in, in essence comes to life in terms of that it can move on its own accord, essentially. So again, so, it's all this stuff you could have just said, that's just a bunch of fairy tales. Well, wait a minute. How come we're seeing that actually coming to being right before our eyes? So I've been working on this theory for a long time, and it's in no way original. I know that a lot of people have been thinking it, you know, simultaneously um, is I feel like uh, you can kind of see the way that uh, technology and kind of how society and how the tyranny of government is moving in a way that like uh, they're really pushing towards this uh, like these vaccination IDs and how these could be tied to your actual ID and how they're trying to start limiting what you can do if you don't have one of these things, right? Where like in some places now you can't even go shopping. Like I think this, the first time it was, it was in Germany where uh, in this town in Germany, you cannot go to the grocery store anymore if you don't have your vaccination ID. And they're trying to tie this, like they've, you know, they ID twenty thirty or whatever that that twenty thirty agenda is. They they really do want to tie the, all of this together in one in one thing, right? And so I feel like what this this vaccination status, right? This vac this vax ID is just trying to soften the blow, trying to get us used to trying like. So I don't even know if this vaccine is like the. I don't think it's the end all be all. I don't think it's what they're, you know, this isn't the end. This is just getting us ready and getting us like um, kind of uh, used to the idea of compliance in a way where we we're going to have to comply with this uh, if we want to continue in this, you know, in this direction. And um, I, I feel like it's just um, it's getting us ready for the mark of the beast. And that perhaps what they're trying to do with uh, uh, really with this big brother push, with this AI push, with this uh, this this symbiosis that they're trying to do, I think they are trying to make maybe like uh, what are your thoughts on who is and what is the Antichrist? Do you have any? Uh, do you think it could be an AI? That's a Okay, so I would have to begin by defining terms again. I'm sure you've noticed by now that I'm big on beginning yeah. at this definition and let's understand our terms and then we can talk about it. So uh, technically, anybody who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is an antichrist. Okay, now, yeah. now okay. it's pretty obvious that the reason that is stated is because of what the Gnostics were claiming, that Jesus 
was a spirit he didn't actually incarnate so this was like the reaction it's like no 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 no. the whole entire point of the entire new testament is that he incarnated in the flesh so if you're denying that that's the problem you're an antichrist and antichrist had already come then and they would keep coming so it's not like it's one single person but it's more like uh if you take a certain point of view then that makes you an antichrist but the issue is in in revelation there is no usage of the term antichrist it's more just a common way that people find to talk about it just like when we said well some people say uh, angels, cherubim, and seraphim are all angelic. Yeah, I mean, that's just a common way people talk. But when you get down to the technicalities, the term antichrist is, you know, I mean, I can understand why, why people use it because it's like going to be the ultimate manifestation of an opponent of God. Okay, fair enough. Let's just say, okay, I mean, I understand it. So I'm um, going to give you the breakdown yeah. of what my mother taught me again. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, thanks mom. Uh, mm. so she, she told me that there will be a, there will be a liar basically that will trick, uh, the majority of Christians, even like a lot of Christians are going to be persuaded by this man. And he's going to be like, what is going to be looked at as like a bringer of peace. Right. And this will be around the time that, uh, the Jews will have built the third temple. Right. So they're going to build this temple in Jerusalem and uh, he is going to, in some way, he's going to be considered, uh, he'll be accepted as the Messiah Hmm. and then he will defile the temple and he will do something atrocious and then the scale will be ripped off the Jews' eyes and they will realize that this man is not the Messiah. And, uh, then, then my mom told me something about him possibly being killed and possibly resurrecting as well. And at that point he will really show his true colors. And that's when we are going to get into some deep tribulation. And, um, so how far off is my ma? What, what, what's the grade she got? <laughs> so the, the thing is, okay. Eschatology or last days end times, it's not yeah. really my thing. So, I can't speak on it in too much of a detail, but I would just caution that because no one is called the Antichrist in Revelation, then we need to be careful because what happens is there's more than one beast and then there's a false prophet. And then sometimes the beasts are not actual beings or people, but they're nations so okay. We have to I will very, just yeah. I will I will just say really fast. My mom is hardcore dispensationalist. And so like if that if that paints a picture for you and I've rejected a lot of the dispensationalism that my mom has given me as I've come into my own, uh but those are some things that I just haven't really looked into yet and so this is still like uh what I grew up yeah. believing. So. I would just say that anybody who wants to really understand that when they read Revelation, they need to pay close attention that there's different characters involved. And it's not only one single person or being doing everything. So it's kind of very difficult to say, well, this one person is going to do this, 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 this and this. 
because well which of the beasts is it and and then it's the beast versus the false prophet and well maybe uh it's a nation that's doing this you know so you have to pay attention to those things as you read revelation just like uh this kind of obsession people have about the mark of the beast where mm-hmm. in revelation it's a tripartite system it's three things it's uh, the the mark of the beast or the number of the beast or the number uh, or the the name of the beast right it's three different things so anyhow it's just my cautionary statement about re-revealing so you said that three stuff different caste systems there or um within that um i wouldn't think so i think that it's either you're going to receive one form of whatever it is or another but I think people focus on the, the mark because it's, it talks about the mark in terms of not being able to buy or sell without it. Mm-hmm. And, and again, yeah, it's pretty um, yeah. socially relevant right now. Well, that's the thing is, again, this isn't my issue, but I would yeah. say it was very interesting. And I agree with you that we may be getting uh, tastes of it, even something as simple as that. There are certain stores you walk into today that they say, we don't accept cash. So basically, if you don't have a credit card, you can't shop with us. Or there's stores where you have membership and you're not allowed inside the store to shop unless you have a membership. You know, this is very low level stuff, but it is kind of like maybe hinting at towards what's coming and that people are perfectly willing to go along with it, incidentally. Yeah, that's the scariest part is that people are kind of going along with it but also there's some nice white pills where i'm seeing a lot of pushback and so um i'm i'm hoping that uh it doesn't evolve into that quite yet you know i i yeah. mean i i have a my son just turned a month old i think wednesday <laughs> you know and wow. i want to think that i'm i'm bringing him into uh I, I, you know, I don't know, <laughs> a decent world. Yeah. This is an interesting time. Like I have so many friends right now that are actually having babies right now as we speak, or have had babies right now as we speak. And I'm like, man, this is a heck of a time to be <laughs> bringing new life into this world. Yes. But then again, that's what we need, you know? So quote unquote, they don't own it, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The infamous they. <laughs> Well, so what are your thoughts on uh, are you giants? Out? <laughs> no, no, I, I'm in. Uh, what are you, what are your thoughts like on we're frozen uh, giants okay, in general? You so, just froze and, up a little bit on my end. Oh, did I? Can you hear me now? No, can yes. can you hear me? Okay, yes, great. Sir. So, what are your what are your thoughts on? Uh, giants in general giants uh in different folklore do you think that there are so i i totally get what you're saying that you don't think there's any nephilim uh still around yeah okay definitely uh, so no nephilim. It, okay so and do you think that there are and or were giants now, giants, now we're going to switch from giants referring to the rendering the Hebrew term Nephilim or Rephaim. And now we're switching over to giants referring to unusual height that's subjectively unusual. Okay, just to make that clear. Uh, well, of course, 
of course, there's always been people who are taller than average. That's like a non-issue. But when we're talking about people, whether there's been people who are entire body lengths taller than the average person, oh boy, that is really difficult. Because if you if you actually look carefully at the claims about that, uh, for example, here's a good one. Well, Flavius Josephus says that uh, in his day, he could still see the bones of these very, very, very tall beings. Well, okay, but Josephus wasn't an anatomist. So how did he know whether he was looking at the bones of uh, whales or pachyderm or dinosaurs? He didn't know. He just said, hey, I saw some big bones, and I'm told that it's from these really tall humanoid beings. Well, he didn't know that. And I mean, that's just a reality that we have to admit and we have to face. Uh, let me give you an interesting example that's pretty popular. Uh, imagine you're, you know, living back in the day a few thousand years and you find the skeleton of a pachyderm. Like we're talking uh, like a mastodon or an elephant, right? Or a mammoth. Uh, well, you don't know what it is. So logically, you lay it out on the ground two-dimensionally, right? You're not building the structure like they do in modern-day museums three-dimensionally. You're laying down on a flat ground, and you're set up the bones in the shape of a human form. We know today you couldn't actually do that because we understand the articulation of the bones. It wouldn't work. But, okay, you're laying it out in the shape of a human form, and then you're looking at the skull, and there's this giant hole in the middle. You don't know that's a trunk hole. So you're saying, hey, that's an eye socket. Guess what? You have a story now about a giant cyclops because you just don't understand what you're looking at. And uh, that's okay. just and, and like I'm not saying things like this answer everything. I'm just saying that it is important for us to be realistic and think about these things, such as, for example, Let's say that some sovereign, some king of some country uh, funds your expedition to a new world. And when you come back, what are you going to say? Oh, gee, I don't know. I guess we saw a different kind of monkey that we're used to. Well, especially if you want to get more funding for your next expedition, you might as well make up some really interesting stories about what you saw. And if you get your rear end kicked, you might as well claim that your rear end was kicked by giants. And you. And if you were victorious, well, you might as well claim that you were victorious against giants. Again, I, I'm just throwing in some that of the things that are very important for us to, to at least consider. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. so... Ken, you're smashing my dreams you, with I, a hammer right now. <laughs> okay, well, let me throw another your logic one at you. Is sound. So, <laughs> So uh, Native Americans tell stories about white, red-haired giants. Okay, well, to me, they're just expressing cultural memories of interacting with Vikings. Because what were Vikings? White, red-haired, and certainly taller than your average Native American. So, I mean, I'm just saying, I, I understand that stories about quote-unquote giants are really interesting and fascinating to listen to, and I've heard a million of them. But, boy, when you really, really dig down into what are the actual facts we can verify, man, there's just hardly anything. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Joe Taylor, the curator of Mount 
Blanco Museum is famous for having made a chart of giants. And it's kind of very typical online. You'll find it. It's just um, a line of skeletons with titles and years under, or sizes underneath. And um, in my book, uh, Nephilim and Giants, Believe It or Not, I have a whole chapter where I just review that chart in detail. And I couldn't find one that's actually accurate and verifiable, except the, just the size of the average person. All the other ones are at least highly questionable, if not just mere claims. I, I mean, that's just straight up. So I don't know. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense, man. And you're hurting me deeply. Uh, <laughs> well, let me, let, me put it let, me, let me put it this way. Um, Oh boy, if the what I call the pop researchers, right, like uh, Gary Wayne, Rob Skiba, Ellie Marzulli, all these guys, if they were just writing fiction, I would say, man, that's awesome because it's so cool to listen to and it's so exciting and fun. But when they're claiming that they're doing theology, it's like, no, 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 it doesn't work. There's just no, no way. And it's kind of interesting how more than ever today, there's an entire cottage industry based around Nephilim and quote unquote giants to the extent that you get yourself on any website that sells books and just type in Nephilim romance. Dude, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of books on Nephilim romances. And there's Nephilim in video games. And there's bands called Nephilim and songs called Nephilim and video games and movies. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> so I, I'm going to throw another curveball at you. Uh, I have heard from uh, different Gnostic sources that they've talked about... Um, lines of people that came from Cain and that a lot of the elites today um, come from this line of Cain. Have you heard anything about this? Like, uh, like, uh, and maybe I guess like uh, dark people, evil people. Um, what are, what are your thoughts basically on uh, what? Okay. Again, this is very broad. You're going to get upset. What is the mark of Cain? What happened to the people that came from Cain? Were they evil? Were they cursed? What was the you know hardships yeah. that they had to endure? Yeah. I'm just curious. What are what are your thoughts on that? What happened to Cain and his descendants? And where are they now? Is that yeah. Hillary Clinton? I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, so I, I I spoke before about how. Was there a, a, an entire bloodline, an entire genealogy that were wicked? I don't see that whatsoever. The best you could do is say, well, Cain murdered his brother. And then, um, oh boy, what was his name? The guy that had two wives and boasted about having murdered somebody. Um, anyhow, th there's two people that you can conclusively point to in the line of Cain who did something uh, specified to have done something wrong. I'm not sure that's enough to condemn an entire bloodline of people. And I would say it's hard to say whether they survived the flood. 
because we don't have a genealogy for Noah's wife and we don't have a genealogy for the wives of Noah's sons. So were they Canaanites? I don't know. I'm, I'm just not sure we can possibly know that. But I would say uh, the mark on Cain, whatever it was, guess what? It was actually a protection from God for Cain. Because hmm. God condemns him like, hey, you know, you murdered your brother. Now, okay, you're going to have to pay for that. But yeah, you're concerned about being murdered yourself and revenge. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this line of protection on you. So I don't know if Hillary Clinton or anybody else is a Canite. I I don't see how that would mean any, much of anything at all, honestly. They have protection. Well, again, I don't know if we can say they, as in an entire bloodline, have protection. That was just Cain. I don't know if it. I don't know if it means anything else about anybody else in his whole entire genealogy. Yeah, no, nah, I'm not saying they are. I'm yeah. Just... Yeah, I, I know. You're, you're kind of reiterating. I, I, I don't yeah. Know if yeah. Interesting. So, uh, so on Noah's boat, right, one of his brothers looked at him while he was drunk and passed out, and then he was cursed? Can you... Uh... Uh, for one, let me just ask if you saw my note in the chat. Oh, let me see here. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, brother. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we're we're on te we're on two hours here. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, it was it wasn't on the boat, and it wasn't his brother. It was after the flood, and it was one of his sons. And yes. that's just another huge rabbit hole right there. I, I just, I literally don't have any more time to get into that. <laughs> that's fair, man. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, well, Ken, we loved having you on. Um, I've got a million questions for you, so we're just going to have to have you back. <laughs> hey, I'll be glad to. Cool yes, sure. Awesome, it's man. Been, yeah, it's been um, really fascinating, I must say. <laughs> well, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your knowledge. Uh, you've definitely put in the knowledge. You've put in the, you know, you've put in the work, and it really shows. And you've you. shattered my dreams, my friend. So <laughs> well, I'm yeah. going to have to have you back on to hurt me some more. Sure. And if you want to get somebody else who knows this stuff very well and actually wants to have a discussion about it, we can do that. I mean, I'm not yeah, like cool, thumping man. my chest like I want to debate people, but I'm interested in discussions. I do like discussing stuff. So, yeah, that's another option. All right. Do you need to plug your stuff or yeah. do you want to plug anything? Oh, yeah. Tell me. Yeah. yeah. Tell us your website. Tell us where people can find yeah. you. Well, I appreciate yeah. that. Um I've written, I've published maybe, I don't know anymore, maybe around 50 books. Wow. And just uh, hundreds of articles. So for me, it's very simple. If you just go to truefreethinker.com, all one word, everything's just user friendly and you'll be able to find anything you need in there about me. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. All right. Hey, that, was, that was awesome. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>